Well, let's pray together, shall we? Father, our, our hearts are already full with the joy of being able to worship with your people and just to sing to you and to rejoice in you and to speak your name together in song has been such a, such a blessing to my soul and to the hearts of your people here this morning. Now, Lord, as we open the word of life, we, we need you to teach us. We need you to help us understand what the scriptures say. We need you, Lord, to help us to live it out, to apply it to the depths of our hearts. And so, Spirit of the living God, would you fall afresh on us this morning. And we would pray this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. Well, just love seeing the kids, don't you? I th if I could put on a little word, let's have the kids every Sunday. Uh, I mean, man, they just bring some life. Right? They bring some life. It's wonderful. Love hearing them sing and, and uh, quote scripture. Well, I want to take you to Psalm 121 this morning, so grab your Bible and you can follow along. Uh, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you, so if you don't have one, no worries. Grab that. I'm going to read from the NIV, and that's the NIV. And uh, you can just take some notes as you wish as we unpack this psalm that has ministered to my heart many, many times. I'm sure you've noticed right off the top, if you look at Psalm 121, right underneath is a title. It says, A Song of Accents. And if you leaf along in your Bible, you're going to see there's a whole slew of them. In fact, it runs from 120 right through to 134. They're all listed as uh, songs of accents. If you were to look up this word in the original, the idea here is to travel towards. And so some people have actually called these psalms the pilgrim songs because the Israelites would sing these songs as they made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate three very essential festivals that they had each year. And so here we are, Psalm 121, the psalmist finds himself out in the wilderness. And he's making his way to Jerusalem to celebrate one of Israel's great festivals, and there's a question on his mind. And that question comes up in the very first verse. He says, where does my help come from? Where does my help come from? And so immediately he's, he's thinking, now, you know, what if I fall on my way to Jerusalem? Who's going to help me up? What if I break a bone? Who's going to be there to assist me? What, what happens if I get attacked out here? Uh, if, if a lion or, a, a, or whatever, a cougar comes down from the mountains and comes after me, what am I going to do? What if I get robbed? What if I get lost for that matter? Who on earth is going to help me? Well... The psalmist here gives us his answer in Psalm 121. Now, the truth of the matter is this. We really have no idea, do we, what's coming around the next corner. Our life are full of uncertainties. You really don't know what's going to happen in the next hour. And likewise, as they were traveling on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate a great festival, the Israelites really had no idea what might have been the, around the next corner. That could be their doom. And so they had a real concern about the uncertainties that they were facing in their travels. So what did they do? 
Well, let me tell you a story. When I was just a little wee gaffer up in campus gazing, my greatest fear was that I was going to get eaten by a bear. Yeah. I mean, we had bears all over the place in Cap. I can remember being in lockdown, especially during the spring season when the bears would come out of hibernation and they would come into town looking for food. And so we were told at a certain hour at night that we were not to go out because you might be their next meal. You might be. Well, we had a cottage up on Remy Lake. This thing was, was only accessible when I was a kid by water. And so it was pretty rustic. And as a little fella, my worst nightmare was having to go to the washroom in the middle of the night because you had to go to the outhouse. And so that was like the worst of my dreams that, oh no, I'm gonna have to make my way with my flashlight out to the outhouse in the middle of the night in the dark. And I was convinced as a little guy that I was gonna get eaten. There was a bear just waiting and he'd take one look at me and say, woohoo, we're eating for a month. We're all set, this is terrific. I mean, I, I could see the headlines as a little kid. I could see it. You know, a boy from campus gazing was last seen on his way to the outhouse. I, I, I could see it. Well, I don't know about you, but there's lots of uncertainties in life, isn't there? And, and lots of, we have fears of the unknown, the unexpected. And so what on earth do you do when you're trying to travel over life's mountains? Well, the psalmist gives us a great answer, doesn't he? Psalm 121. He tells us not only what he did, but where he went for his help. And he does this really for our encouragement. So let me suggest to you the next time you are facing and traveling along the road of life and facing all kinds of uncertainties that you sing Psalm 121 to yourself, just as the psalmist did to himself. Well, in the very first verse, we are told this, that God is a constant helper. That God is a constant helper. You'll notice right after he asks the question, he answers it immediately. And it's absolutely filled with confidence. There is no uncertainty or doubt in his mind. He knows who it is that is his sole helper in the uncertainties of life. He says, where does my help come? Verse two, answer, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so here the psalmist had already discovered in his travels two glorious truths about the living God. He was both powerful and he was an able helper. Why could he say this? You'll notice that in this, in this psalm, the word Jehovah, or Yahweh, comes up at least five times. You notice that in verse two, in caps, L-O-R-D, and then as you work your way through the psalm, five times he says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. I mean, it becomes obvious that for him, his trust and confidence was in the one who was the great I am, the God who is sovereign, and who rules over everything, including every uncertainty and every unknown in our lives. A God who fulfills his covenant promise to his people continually. So that's where his confidence lay, but more than that. Not only was, his, was he confident that God was Jehovah, but he was confident that God was creator. Because he says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker 
the maker of heaven and earth. <coughs> and so here, the psalmist is reminding you and I that this isn't any just some ordinary joy that's assisting him along the way of life, but rather, he says, the very creator of heaven and earth, the one who, with his own word, brought everything you see into, into being. He is the God who is beside me. He is the God who travels along with me. And so, you will find as you work your way through the, the book of Psalms that quite often the psalmist will point to creation and point God's people to creation as evidence, as, as firm evidence of the power of the living God. And that we have absolutely nothing to fear along the road of life if God is with you. Because God is a God who is sovereign in his acts and a God who is able to do anything above and beyond our imagination. And so the psalmist is telling us, so look nowhere else for help but to the living God. Look to no one else for help but to the living God. So when you see the mountains, look up and look over them. Look up and over your unknowns. Look up and over your circumstances. Look up and over your uncertainties. And look to the one who not only made the hills, but is above the hills and who stands over the hills because he is a sovereign creator of heaven and earth. You know, I don't know about you, but there's lots and lots of people who want to help. We learned yesterday at the funeral of Ron Moore. He was somebody who would help anyone in need. And there's a lot of us who love to help others in need. But we have two problems. One is, often we lack the time necessary to provide consistent help to somebody, or you and I lack the resources necessary to really assist them in their time of need. But you know what the truth is? The living God has every resource in eternity at your disposal. He lacks nothing in regards to being able to assist you through the uncertainties and the unknowns of life. I came across a, a little story I thought was kind of cute. <coughs> a story of a little fellow who is outside of a confectionery. He's looking in through the window and he notices this giant jar of chocolates. And you can just see the little guy is drooling, wishing, boy, I'd like to get my hand in that jar of chocolates. And frankly, so would I. Anyway, that's a side note. But uh, this, 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 uh, the stone owner kept, kept seeing this little guy. And he thought, oh, if I don't look at him, I'm sure he'll go away. But every time he glanced out the window, oh, there's this little fella just plastered up against the window, staring intently at this jar, giant jar of chocolates. Well, finally, the owner gave in. He invited the little guy in and said, look, son, help yourself. Take as many as you like. Took the lid off and said, it's all yours. Well, the little guy just stood there. And he said, oh, no, son, no, no problem. Look, reach in, take a handful, and they're free. They're all yours. Well, he stood there and didn't do anything. And so finally... The stone store owner reached in with his hand and took a handful of chocolates and gave it to the little guy. And he burst out with a big smile, and the owner said, how come you wouldn't put your hand in? He said, because, sir, your hand is bigger. <laughs> you see, 
That's the message of Psalm 121. God's hand is bigger. It's bigger, friends. It's always been big and able and sovereign and powerful. So let him provide for you what you need because he has every resource in heaven at his disposal for your needs, always. I love the invitation of of, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, I just love this. Hebrews 4 reminds us of the, of the ministry of the Lord Jesus to you and I right now. This is the ministry he's taken on. And in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer there is explaining why we need to keep a firm grip on Jesus. Why should you keep a firm grip on Jesus? Here's why. Listen to these words. Hebrews 4, I'm going to take you down to verse 14. He says, therefore, he's summing up. (coughs) Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So what's the invitation? Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's the role that the Lord Jesus, as our great high priest, plays for you and I right now. This is what he's taken on personally. And and the writer in Hebrew says he's been through it all. He's been through every uncertainty and every unknown that you are facing. He's already been down the path. He's got the t-shirt well before you ever did. And not only has he been through it all, but he's come through it victoriously. So don't be afraid to seek his help. He's traveled in your shoes many times, and he's got the grace you need to get through. I'll tell you, I know this personally, as you do, as you do. In 30 years of plus of ministry, I've had one lesson after another of experiencing God's grace and mercy and help in every facet of ministry, and sometimes it's been really, really, really messy. God has been my constant helper, and I love this verse in Isaiah 41.10. It's probably my, my favorite verse in all the Bible. I remember uh, getting this verse many years ago as a teenager, and I've hung on to it ever since. Isaiah 41.10. I think some of you have heard me quote it to you if you've been in the hospital. But here, here's what Isaiah said to a nation in trouble. In their darkest hour, he said to them, Do not fear, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Boy, don't we need to hear that truth today? Don't we need to trust it and rely upon that truth in a world that's that's gone crazy? We need to remember not to fear, because we have a God who is with us, who will strengthen us, help us, and uphold us with his righteous right hand. Well, the psalmist isn't done yet. He's unpacked the the truth, that, that, that glorious truth that God is our constant helper. But he's more than that. 
And that's where the bulk of the psalm now focuses in on, and that is that God is a consistent keeper. God is a consistent keeper. Now you notice here in verse three that word slip. Now we probably don't like that word, but it's there. And when the psalmist says, he will not let your foot slip, the idea really is that the psalmist is reminding us that there are, there are along the path of life moments when we do slide and slip and fall and trip. It happens. It's unavoidable. Some of your versions may have the word moved there rather than the word slipped. But what the psalmist wants to focus in isn't on the slipping, but rather on the next word found in verse 3, which is watches. And so what the psalmist does now is that he repeats an opposite truth in that context multiple times. He repeats this in order for you and I to realize that God, God's hand of keeping is on you. And the word watch comes up five times in this text. Or six times, in fact, you're going to see the word come up. Three, he, he who watches, he who watches. Five, the Lord watches. Uh, going down to verse seven, he will watch. Verse eight, he will watch. Now the word here in some of your Bibles may be the word keep. Whether it's keep or watch, the idea here is protection. He will protect. He will protect. He will protect. And so the psalmist wants us to take hold of this great truth because he keeps repeating it. He wants us to understand it in the context of the comprehensive nature of God's keeping power in your life. Now, every Israelite knew the danger of slipping and falling while they were traveling through the mountains. And when they heard this word watch, or keep, or if you wish, protect, they immediately thought of a couple of key occupations in Israel where the work of guarding and protecting was absolutely essential. And those occupations were that of a guard, a farmer, and a shepherd. Now think about this, a guard was somebody who was tasked with the job to keep watch over a city day and night, making sure that it was never overrun by its enemies. A farmer is tasked with the job to keep watch over his garden, making sure that the weeds don't crowd out and choke out the crops. And the shepherd is tasked with the job to keep watch over his sheep, making sure that they are well protected and provided for day and night. And so the psalmist is telling his readers and he's telling us that God is the ultimate keeper of your life and soul. He is the one who is that guard, that farmer, that shepherd, who continues, continues to watch over every aspect of your going and your coming over every uncertainty and unknown in your life. And so the psalmist here in Psalm 121 is answering the question for us. The question is this, what kind of care does God really provide? How extensive is it? Is it, is it just for today and then it's gone, he withdraws? Is it, is it, does it just cover the basics and then nothing else is, is covered by his watch care? Is, it, is this protection such 
that it's not just physical, but it's also spiritual. So how comprehensive is it? Well, the psalmist launches right into that answer in Psalm 121, so that there's no doubt in his readers' minds concerning the watch care and consistency of God's protecting hand. And again, he takes them back into the fields where they already are, and he says to them in this, in verse 3 and 4, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will neither slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And so what the psalmist begins with is he, he now tells his readers the nature of God's watch care. And he reminds them that, frankly, every detail of their journey, God is involved with. He doesn't just start with them and then see them at its conclusion, but he walks with them throughout the entirety of their journey. And God is aware of the potentials for slipping off the mountain. And he's so concerned, the point of the psalmist here is that he holds on to us, he has a firm grip on us that's unshakable throughout the entirety of the journey. I mean, you will notice in this psalm that he moves from the my to the you and the your. And so what he tells the Israelites in Psalm 121 is that God's watch care is specific to each of them. Nobody's left out. God constantly, no matter who you are or what's going on in your life, is watching over you with a protective concern. Now that may look different for each individual, but the nature of his care is consistent for each of us in Christ. And he goes on here to define its extent. You notice the words slumber and sleep. Slumber comes up twice and sleep comes up once. And so he says to us, how comprehensive is his care? Well, he says, God never, ever is off the job. There's never a time when God says, oops, oh boy, I, I, I kind of uh, dozed off there and uh, hope Ken's okay. Not once. God is constantly looking over our lives. God never dozes off, he's never off the job, he never gets weary in the execution of his duty. He is alert to the dangers around you, he's alert and always fighting for you, he is keeping you in his grace, he's always helping you even when we are totally unaware of his presence, or totally uh, unaware of the danger our souls are in. He is actively watching, guarding, and protecting and caring for his people day in and day out. That's good news. So when you are out of it, and I mean out of it, he's on top of it, friends. Always, according to the scriptures. Psalm 34, 15 puts it like this. And I know you know the scripture already, but I'm going to read it to you. Listen to this. This is terrific. Psalm 34, going down to verse 15. The Lord, oh, that's another good verse, but not the right one. Here it is. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Aren't you glad for this? And his ears are attentive to their cry. You know, I, I, I read a little, another little article that I thought was very interesting concerning the protective hand of the living God. The early American Indians, 
apparently had a very unique practice of training their young braves. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, after learning how to hunt and uh, scout out things and fish, he was put to a one final test. He was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night all by his lonesome. Until then, <coughs> he had never been away from the security of his family or tribe. They were always there to protect and support. When he took, so what they would do is on that night, they would put a blindfold on the young lad and they'd take him out into the forest several miles away from the, the tribe. And when the young fellow took off his blindfold, he would discover that he was in the middle of a thick forest and he would be absolutely terrified. I mean, every twig that snapped, he would visualize a wild animal ready to pounce, something like me when I was, anyway, we won't go there again. And, uh, and after what seemed like an eternity, you can imagine this, dawn finally broke, and the first rays of sunlight would, uh, would enter the interior of the forest, and the young lad would look around, and he would see the flowers and the trees and, and the outline of the path home. And then to his utter uh, uh, astonishment, he would behold the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and arrow. It was his father, and he'd been there the entire time. That's the message of Psalm 121. You may think God's forsaken you, and you're all alone to face the, the, uh, you know, the snapping twigs in your life and the darkness of the hour that you're in, but you are not. He is watching over you just like this father did, the son in the forest, with his bow and arrow at hand, protecting, providing, making sure that you do, in fact, get home. God is a consistent keeper over his children. And the psalmist not only says that he never falls asleep on the job, but he tells us the extent of this care in verse five and six. He writes, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. And here is a Hebrew parallelism. And what that is, that a statement is made in verse five that the psalmist then expands in verse six. And he does this for emphasis. So he says in verse five, the Lord watches over you. And then in verse six, he explains the extent of that watching. Well, how often? You know, eight hours a day? Uh, how often does he, does he watch over me? Well, he tells you. He says, the sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. And so the emphasis here in the text is simply this that God's watch care for the believer in Christ is 24-7. And he says, not only is he your shade at your right hand, but you notice the analogy of the sun, the moon, day, and night. And so now he says, his care for you is 24-7. It just never ends. It just never ends. Now, what does he mean by the phrasing, your shade at your right hand? Well, Leslie and I love to go to Florida. We go to Florida, she heads to, for the sun, and I head for the shade. <clears throat> That's consistently so. And I don't know about you, but I can't take the heat. And neither, frankly, could any Israelite take the hot climate. 
Shade was absolutely necessary for life when the sun was at its peak. And so to work in it or to walk in it or to lie down in the sun really was to your detriment. And so what we're told here in this psalm is that God's watch care over us, his protective hand in us, is compared to your shade at your right hand. Now the word shade here in the original could be the word shield. And so God here compares himself to a shield. And the idea is this. The right hand is a, is a position of strength and authority in the word of God. And so God acts as your shield at your right side, expressing the idea that his keeping watch over you and I is consistent, it is constant, and here's the good news, it's invincible. It's invinc invincible. He isn't distant, he isn't indifferent, he isn't detached in your hour of need or weak to help. No, he is far closer than most of us ever realize and never are you without him acting in this capacity of keeping and protecting. Your soul belongs to him, friend, if you are in Christ this morning. It belongs to him, and nothing, nothing that life or Satan can throw out at you can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 35 to 39, that's the good news. So it's consistent, it is constant, but there's one more thing I want you to notice in the text, verse seven and eight. Now he wraps it up. Now he comes to the climax, this is the pinnacle. He's reached the top, and he says to us, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming, your going, both right now and forevermore. And so once again, we see the completeness, the certainty of God's care for the believer in Christ. And the point of the text isn't, it is that God doesn't just watch over you physically, but he watches over you, more importantly, spiritually. He watches over his children spiritually. I mean, the greatest danger you and I are in today is spiritual, friend, not physical. The greatest danger you are in is spiritual. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. And uh, over to verse 26. Again, you know this, this verse, but it's good to be reminded of it. Jesus says the following to us in verse 26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Answer, nothing. Nothing. What good is it for you to have every earthly good and gift that there possibly could be piled for your, your use, and yet you forfeit your soul? You forfeit what's, what's critically important your spiritual well-being and eternity. I mean, the Bible is clear, is it not, that here's the danger we are in. Romans tells us in verse 6 of this danger that the Word of God heeds us to listen to. Verse 23 makes it so clear. It says, for the wages of sin is death. There's the danger, friend, you are in. 
but it gives us a solution. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the good news is, is explained for the believer in Colossians chapter two. And that good news in chapter two, verses 14 and 15, remind you and us that Jesus has defeated Satan on the cross. And it tells us that Jesus has nailed our sins to the cross. He has canceled them. He has removed, according to this text, every record of our sin debt. And he has disarmed every evil force against you, putting them to open shame because Jesus alone triumphed over them. That's the good news. Hebrews 2.14 reminds you and I that Jesus is the only one. He took on human flesh for the purpose of destroying the one who has the power of death, and that is Satan himself. Do you realize that one of the essential roles of the Trinity today is to, is to keep you saved? You understand that? that both the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in tandem to get you home to glory, and so that the work of Christ is, is not nullified, but rather it is effectual and effective in your life, assuring that all that Jesus purchased for you with his blood is applied to you and given to you in his Son. Do you understand that truth? Listen to John chapter 10. This is a great, great verse that you, you've got to camp on often, especially when the evil one attacks and tries to convince you that it's all in vain. Oh, friend, it isn't. Listen, John 10, 27 says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now listen, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Did you hear it? They shall never perish, he says. Why? No one can snatch them out of my hand. And then there's double security here. He says, and my father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And the father and I are one. Boy, that is good news. You have a double security, the father and the son working in tandem to, to ensure that you know the golden chain of your redemption from start to finish. That is great news. You see, friends, the emphasis of this psalm in Psalm 120 is that God doesn't just bring you to Christ and then leave the rest up to you. He doesn't just save you and then he sits back to see if you're going to make it or not. That's not the emphasis at all. Found throughout the entirety of the scripture, in fact, as you work your way through 1 Peter chapter 1, he links one glorious truth after another in regards to the saving work of Christ in your life. And he says, friend, do you realize it is God who has elected you? Friend, do you realize that it is God who sent Jesus? Friend, do you realize that it is God who raised Jesus from the dead? Friend, do you realize it is God who caused you to be born again? And friend, do you realize it is God who is keeping your inheritance? The whole point of 1 Peter is to illustrate that golden chain of God's hand redemptively on his child from start to finish. That's true of Romans chapter 8. It's his work. It's his work. And God has every provision in his stockhouse to get you home. Just as he made every provision for an Israelite to get to Jerusalem, 
because he is the covenant-keeping God and the creator of heaven and earth. So too, God is the ultimate helper and the ultimate keeper of the believer in Christ, and we have nothing to fear and every reason to trust him with our journey home because God has every twist and turn in his hand. Let's rejoice in that. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes we question this, don't we? We lose a loved one suddenly. We wonder, God, hey, just a minute here, where's your, where's your care? I remember when my dad died of a heart attack in his backyard. My mother needed him. My mother needed him, and he's gone. And I remember standing in the backyard where dad had died, saying to the Lord in tears, what's this? I don't get this. Now what? Maybe, maybe you've lost your job and the income you need for your family is gone and you're wondering about God's provision. Been there. Four years ago, I'm, un, I'm unemployed. And I'm wondering, all right, God, now what? What am I going to do? Am I ever going to preach again? Is this it? I'm done? How on earth am I going to pay the mortgage? Maybe that's where you're at this morning. We go through one trial after another and we wonder about God's delivering power. Friend, I've been down this road, and I want you to listen to this psalm this morning because although there are many hills to cross over and there are sufferings to endure in this life and there are battles to be fought, God's design in, his, in it all is to enable us to experience the fullness of his watch care and keeping ability in our lives so that we will trust him more and more and more as he continues to prove to us at every turn and twist in life that God is for us and not against us. That's the point of this psalm. That's what the psalmist wanted his readers to take hold of. I love this hymn. I know my time is probably long gone, but I gotta read you this hymn. You remember this hymn, Fanny Crosby, All the Way the Savior Leads Me? She tells the story that she needed five bucks, just five dollars. And she didn't have a clue where it was going to come from. Knock comes to her door. She goes and opens the door, and there's a gentleman there, asked to come in, and so she invited him in. They talked for quite a while. And as he left, after several hours, he put his hand in hers, and out he went. When she opened her hand, there was $5. God had answered her prayer, her need, in a way that she never expected. And so she sat down and wrote this, all the way the Savior leads me, what have I, I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell, for I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way that my Savior leads me, cheers every winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter, and my soul athirst may be, Gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. Gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. All the way my Savior leads me, all the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit clothed in mortal wings its flight to realms of day, 
This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. Well, three applications, and I'll close with this. Friend, number, number one, remember. Remember that you are a pilgrim in a strange land. Remember that you are a pilgrim in a strange land. Whenever I cross an international border, I'm very quickly reminded by the culture and the language I'm hearing and the food around me that I'm in another land and I'm not home. It isn't home. <coughs> and as followers of Jesus, the Bible reminds us again and again and again that we are strangers and exiles in the world. In other words, planet Earth is not your true home. So don't put down deep roots here. You're really just passing through, aren't you? You're headed to your true home, your eternal home. That's heaven. I remember hearing this story of a missionary couple. They were on a ship that arrives in the harbor in uh, New York City. On the ship was one of the presidents of the United States. And when the ship pulled up to the dock and the president was coming off the ship, they could hear the bands opening up and the crowds cheering and welcoming the president home as he stepped ashore. But for this couple, who were a missionary couple, being 50 years on the field, there was not a single person there to greet them. Nobody to welcome them home. The wife turned to the husband and said, what's this? What's this in disappointment? We served the Lord faithfully for 50 years. We sacrificed everything we've had and not a single person comes to welcome us. To which the husband replied, but dear, we aren't home yet. Do you get it? We aren't home yet. Oh, friend, do you realize that the best is yet to come for you in Christ if you're in Christ this morning? Your best days lie ahead of you in eternity. And as you read that list of, of individuals who walk by faith in Hebrews 11, it becomes clear that each individual mentioned there was looking ahead, as you must. They were future-orientated. Their attention wasn't on the past, but on the fulfillment of their faith. That must be true of us who were in Christ today. You're a pilgrim, but you're on your way home. Second, rest in God to get you home. Rest in God to get you home. It becomes clear from the psalm that one of the central truths that the, that the psalmist relied upon and trusted in and their confidence was always in was that God was the maker of heaven and earth. That was absolutely foundational to their faith into the life of every single Israelite. Why is that so important? Now think about it. We live in a world that's worked real hard to eliminate God altogether from, from, the, from the very start, don't we? We have a world that wants God out of the way and out of the picture. And yet, when you read your Bibles and you look at the very first verse, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, there is a foundational truth to all that is said and happens next in the scriptures. 
Yet our world has eliminated God. And so we're, our world is left in the dark. And now we see this fight for identity and this fight to figure out who we are and how we got here and do we have any worth and what's our purpose. And there's nothing but confusion and chaos because God has been exited from the building. But God has from the start defined who we are and who he is and how it all got here. And God's biggest desire right from Genesis 1 on is to have a living, meaningful relationship with us. That's his ultimate. That's his greatest delight, his joy. And he wants you to know that joy and delight in return. And you think about this is a record of all that God does and all the, all the lengths that he goes to to ensure that we have a relationship with him and that this relationship that he restores is kept. Think about all that God does. Romans chapter 28 to 39. God, Paul finally says, if God is for you, who can be against you? What's the proof? The cross. There's the ultimate proof that God is for us. Think about the implications of of Romans chapter eight. There's, there's a listing of the crown of our confidence in God's willingness and ability to get us home. He tells us that yes, this world is broken and we groan in it, but he writes to the Romans and he says to his people, chin up brothers, chin up. God has got this from start to finish. God will work out everything in the end for your ultimate good and his glory, so chin up. God wants you to rest in the truth that from start to finish, he's always been for you. He is not against you. The cross is a proof. God did not crush his own son to lose you in the fight in the end. No way, Jose. He has personally committed himself to be your sufficient helper and able protector all of your days. He will get you home to glory someday. He will complete the work he has begun in you someday. And every trouble that we have to experience here, including our last enemy, death itself, God promised to eliminate altogether. In fact, he says he will wipe away your tears personally. We desperately need this hope in our world, don't we? This just has one disappointment after another. But listen, somebody once said, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? Friend, do you know without a doubt that heaven is your eternal destination? Do you know that? Are you on the right path that leads to God's home? Listen, every Israelite knew where the city of God lay and they knew what road to take to get there. They knew the dangers along the way on their journey to Jerusalem, but it was worth the risk in order for them to celebrate eventually with the people of God in the temple of God. To miss that for every Israelite was unthinkable. Friend, to miss out on heaven is unthinkable. That is an eternal tragedy when God has made every ultimate provision to get you home. So trust in God's provision because it's perfect. It's Jesus who longs to be the caretaker, the caretaker of your soul and life. Trust him. Trust him. Rest in him to get you home. And then lastly, thirdly, remember, rest, rejoice. Rejoice in God's, in, in Christian fellowship. 
Do you realize that the church is God's gift to you and me? That the church is really a foretaste of what awaits us in glory? And the fellowship we enjoy with each other, we will enjoy someday in eternity with God himself and the rest of his people from every tribe and nation. Do you understand that the church is God's design for here and now, for our growth, our mutual encouragement, our support, the place to express our worship with others, to serve God with our gifts for the maturity of the body, to be in community with the people of God, Listen, for every Israelite male, it was absolutely unthinkable for them not to participate in the three redemptive celebrations held in Jerusalem each year. For them to gather with others who loved and worshiped the living God, the God of heaven, and their redemption was the ultimate privilege. Friend, it should be unthinkable for us as followers of Jesus to neglect the church and to miss out in participating in the life and ministry of the church. The church must be a priority. Fellowship of God's people must must be a must. Participation in, in a community group, a lifeline for you spiritually, the worship of God, the God of heaven with God's people, the greatest privilege ever. Do you see it that way? We should. We must. The church is God's ordained means to feed, assure, and protect God's people while on earth. So enjoy it. Friend, enjoy it as you you anticipate with your brother and sister that glorious day when Jesus will return and lead us into the new Jerusalem together. And we will then know in all of its fullness, unending help and protection from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Psalm 121. It has been a tonic to my heart many, many times. I have run there when I have found myself in the dark depths of life and wondered if I was going to make it. And then you remind me, as you have many, many times, The Lord is my keeper. The Lord watches over me. Day and night, my going out and my coming in forevermore. And Father, I pray that you would help me to be an individual who will camp out in Psalm 121 in my own life. And I will be able to point others to the God of heaven who is a constant helper, and a consistent keeper. Amen. Tom Budge will be coming up in just a minute, and at that point you can have a seat, but let me read this glorious doxology from Jude 24 and 25. He writes to him who is able, you like that? Oh, that's good, eh? Who is able to what? To keep you from falling and I present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now 
and forevermore. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.